everyone, and welcome to episode five of season four of Psychological. Psychological is a podcast that started during lockdown and it aims to make an evidence-based contribution to conversations about child and adolescent well-being, development and learning, and neurodiversity. I'm Dr. Lou Thomas, your podcast host. I'm neurodivergent, so I'm autistic and I have ADHD. And today I've got another repeat guest, the wonderful Dr. Saloni Krishnan. Hello. Saloni is a developmental cognitive neuroscientist at Royal Holloway who specialises in the neural basis of developmental language disorder, or DLD. And she's on the phone with me today to talk about one of her recent papers, Quantitative MRI Reveals Differences in Striatal Myelin in Children with DLD. So it's pretty exciting. We've got like, we've got an fMRI paper today, haven't we? which is really fun. We don't usually have that. So it's very exciting. So hello, Saloni. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm good. Fantastic. So we'll jump straight in and start with what you found. So would you be able to tell me what you discovered in this piece of research? Yeah, so we we scanned lots of children with DLD and um, neurotypical children. We were comparing their brains using a kind of novel new technique, which I guess we can get into a bit more. Yeah. But the very exciting thing uh, was that we saw that there were differences in striatal myelin in children with DLD relative to the neurotypical children. Awesome. So I guess for people listening, if they're not quite sure maybe what that means or what it is, would you be able to explain like a little bit about what that is? I guess? Yeah, so the striatum are grey matter structures that are sort of within the brain, so deep yeah. within the brain. Um, and they tend to have a role, we think, in kind of learning habits or sequences or procedures. And back in 2016, I wrote this paper suggesting that they might be kind of important for um, or involved in DLD. Um, but then back in 2021, I wrote this paper where I was like, there's absolutely no evidence for this whatsoever. Yeah. So I think this is kind of going back to my roots to be like, perhaps. Perhaps there is. I want to find out. Yeah. So I guess I was, the next question is always, what was the motivation to look at this? But there it is. It was your previous <laughs> previous idea that that might be the case. So you looked into it, which is awesome. So I guess we'll jump into the next bit, which is how did you actually do the study, basically, so you can get into the methods, I guess, a bit now. Yeah, so traditionally, um, so basically we were comparing brain structure in these neurotypical children and these children with DLD. And I think compared to most psychological scans, this was probably really fun for the children because they were lying in the scanner with some nice headphones watching a movie. Oh, cool. um, well, we got these uh, lovely images. They take about 20 minutes to get. Um, but I guess in our end, the, the really cool thing about these images is that traditionally when you get a brain scan, um, especially a structural brain scan, it's really cool because you can obviously see inside someone's head, which is, mm. I still think, incredibly um, amazing. So cool. But um, it's just kind of telling you like what the contrast is, right? So think of a picture and it's kind of saying the the higher numbers are more gray, the lower numbers are more white, but the numbers themselves are meaningless. It's just about the kind of, in the brain, what is gray and what is white. And so we can do things like quantify um, cortical thickness or like gray matter volume and things like that. Uh, the problem with this approach is it's not very reproducible. So for example, if you take someone um, to another scanner and you get the same brain scan, obviously their brain hasn't changed, mm. but the kind of contrast values you get here will be different, right. right? So think of like taking a picture in various different bits of lighting. The person's face hasn't changed, but your image mm -hmm. is changing quite a bit. Um, but this this new technique, 
technique is really cool because actually what it gives us is a better sense of the cell structure. So it's quite, um, I'm not going to go into the full physics of it, um, partially because I can't explain it fully. <laughs> um, but some clever people have thought about this. And the idea is you take these um, scans with very different weightings. So you're kind of using these physical properties and using some kind of fancy computation. Then you try and calculate um, what is the actual value for things like the longitudinal relaxation rate or one over the kind of transverse relaxation rate, which are familiar terms for most people doing MRI research, but perhaps less so for yeah. a broader yeah. audience. You yeah. just have to take my word that these are important numbers yeah. in MRI research. Yeah. Um, and so you get these kind of like formal numbers. And the, the really cool thing is though, like if I scan somebody today and I say this number is 800 in the striatum and I take them to a different scanner, that's the number I should get back. So that's really exciting oh, and that very different to like the traditional MRI sequence. Um, and it also means that then we can be a lot more sensitive to kind of changes, right? Because we're actually mm -hmm. getting at this sort of histological level and we can look at kind of different kinds of cell structures. So you get three maps, um, actually four, but we tend to use three from them. Um, but you get an empty sat or magnetization transfer saturation, um, an R1 map and an R2 style map. Um, I'm not going to say too much, but things like the R2 star map are sensitive to things like iron in your brain, okay. whereas we think things like R1 are really sensitive to um, uh, myelin, particularly in gray matter, or mm -hmm. empty sat is also very sensitive to myelin in gray matter. So ideally, what you would want to see is that, you know, you see some convergence across these three maps, because obviously myelin will affect them, but we know that R2 star is slightly different, that it's more sensitive to iron. Um, so that means that we can make these more quantitative predictions about what we're seeing in the brain. Mm. So, for example, in a, a paper that came out before mine in eLife, one of my co-authors, Gabe Claire, showed that in people with um, stuttering, um, you see elevated R2 star in the putamen. Um, so, so that kind of suggested that there you might see like different part of the striatum, so these deep matter grade nuclei, mm. um, but a slightly different kind of cellular explanation potentially oh that's really cool <laughs> that's very cool yeah. um so yeah here we were seeing these differences in our empty sat images um mm. and yeah that hopefully that was complicated yeah. enough no yeah that that makes that makes sense that's that's really well explained as well so um i'm gonna ask a question but my brain just disappeared it didn't disappear that's a really silly thing to say but you know what i mean <laughs> Imagine if that did happen. Yeah, so into I guess if it sort of like the function of that area, what do you how do you think that kind of like maps onto some of the differences we get in DLD versus people that don't have DLD? So kind of how do you think the brain so structure is this is kind of what our 2016 paper was about. Mm -hmm. And there's also a kind of theory that came before us called the procedural deficit hypothesis. And the idea was that the striatum might be very important, partially because it's connected up to all of these different parts of the brain already, but it's really important in kind of sequencing plans. And you can mm. imagine that this kind of sequencing and habit formation would be very important for language. So one explanation would be that kind of disorganized or slightly lower amounts of striatal myelin might be something that contributes to you having learning challenges, for yeah. example. Yeah. I want to be careful, though, because then that suggests that the myelin is the cause of the language yes. difficult yeah it can um, involve can't it there can be a few different causes and things or it can even be a 
an effect of. So Exactly. So it could interestingly be the fact that we see these myelin differences are a consequence of children mm-hmm. having a DLD rather than um, a cause. And um, so, yeah, I want to be careful there because it's a correlational yeah. design um, in particular, but it's a really useful starting step because um, in some previous work, so we did the kind of traditional analysis that most people would do with those gray white images that I talked about, and we didn't see any differences there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really interesting that this kind of more um, sensitive tool perhaps is able to give us a bit more insight. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, and I guess like, what's the sort of utility of working out what things look like in different conditions in brain scans? Do you have any sort of idea of maybe how that could be used or how it could feed into future research maybe I think when we started out one thing is really thinking about like you know we know disorders like DLD um, have a genetic basis and we would expect that to be expressed at some level in the brain to then give rise to behavior Mm -hmm. and actually we've been not particularly good at tracking down that intermediate step particularly in DLD research Mm -hmm. and it can give us clues to mechanisms so for example like if we traditionally only think about language as kind of frontal and temporal areas so your classic Bruker Wernicke type areas Mm -hmm. then we don't think about all of the kind of development that's happening in language and the fact that actually learning is a developmental process and that's one of the reasons why we thought the striatum was really interesting because Mm -hmm. even though ultimately language processing might be happening in these kind of higher order cortical regions the striatum might be an important kind of connector when you're learning information yeah this is all speculation, though, because one of the real difficulties we faced was that ideally what we would have had in our DLD group is some kind of a learning task, and then we would have linked, you mm. know, this level of striatal myelin to that kind yeah. of learning. But yeah. it's actually really hard to get these learning tasks that are reliable at an individual level behaviorally. Um, so we we weren't able to do that. And I think that's kind of a interesting future direction. Yeah. Yeah. So the scans that you've done are sort of like structural scans then, I guess. Yeah. They're not resting state because they're doing stuff, right? So it's just like, is it like a structural scan? Yeah, it is a structural scan. Yeah. We do have other data. So we have functional scans and we have resting state scans and DTI scans. Wow. But yeah, there's a lot to get into there. Yeah. <laughs> That's very exciting though. More to come. Yeah. At least they were watching. Could they watch films for the rest of it? Was the rest of the task as fun as the film watching? Probably not. <laughs> um, so they had to do a couple of language tasks, one of which was like naming, like, uh, well, generating a verb in response to a picture. And the other one was like learning the names of some aliens. Oh, cool. Um, okay. <laughs> but I, I definitely think that the movie was the highlight of them. Um, yeah. What did they watch? I'm just curious. <laughs> a lot of them watched Inside Out. Okay. Yeah, it's quite a good choice for like in when you're inside the scanner looking at your brain. Yeah, that's a good choice. Yeah. Did they have a a choice of films then? What did you? They did have a choice of film. And I can't remember exactly what we had. I remember at some point we, you know, because like we had a lot of Disney and Pixar films. And one of the criteria is also that um, the films can't be too funny because you don't want your kids laughing and then wriggling about in the scanner. So we had this like, you know. Not too funny, but very interesting, hopefully, movies. But I remember feeling quite bad for, like, uh, older kids going, like, mm. these are probably really dull for you. Oh, yeah. What was your age range of people that you were? 10 to 15. Okay. So the 10-year-olds yeah. were fine, but the, by the time you're 15, like, 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of adults still like Disney movies, to be honest. No, like, that's true. Yeah. yeah. I think maybe some point we did try to acquire a Star Wars movie or something yeah. like that. But can you imagine, like, an excellent use of research funds buying some movies? <laughs> I think that's a great use of research funds. That's fantastic. Interesting. <laughs> it's quite exciting to see what people do. It's also interesting to hear, like, the things that you have to think about as well, like designing a study and having to be like, I have to choose a film that's not too funny. Yeah. <laughs> or not too scary. I was not doing some scary, adult work funny. at some point and I was like, David Attenborough documentary, very nice, very relaxing. At some point, a whole bunch of crabs just scuttle onto this beautiful beach. And I think my participant goes like... <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit like a bit of a jump scare yeah. in, a, in a David Attenborough documentary. You don't need that, do you, in a scanner? Who picked the films then? Did you have someone like going through and deciding on... I remember Harriet Smith, who's one of the co-authors on the paper, came up with some ideas and then like added to the collection over time. So I'll give her the credit for the movies. Fantastic. Well done, Harriet. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, that, that I'm going to maybe, yeah, because we've just chatted about the paper a lot. I'll stop with the paper question now because that was a really good conversation. And I think it's really interesting for people to hear about different methods as well, because a lot of the things that we've spoken about have been behavioural. And this is a really exciting method as well so super good to hear about that thank you so much for chatting to me about it final question is now not related to the research but it's the one that I ask everybody don't know what you what you said last time so <laughs> we'll see if you've got different advice this time but uh there's lots of students and and early career researchers that listen in on the podcast and I was wondering if there's any advice that you would like to say to them I think last time I talked about work-life balance, which is still a topic that yeah. to my heart. Yeah. Um, I guess um, maybe let's talk about imposter syndrome. So I'm facing this currently in my lab where, like, you know, people are kind of scared to put themselves forward or be like, what if I fail? You know, I'm going to be caught out because I fail. Um, and I just feel a little bit like everyone's facing the same thing. So like saying yes to a few more things, getting involved, putting yourself out there, it's not always as bad as you might think it is. No, not at all. Yeah, that's really good advice. Everyone gets imposter syndrome in academia, don't they? It's, it's all over the place. Yeah. Although I still get it and I'm not in academia at the moment and I've still got it. <laughs> I totally get it. I went to this meeting in Edinburgh with all of these like really senior people, including someone who taught me during my master's degree. And I was like, I can't believe I'm going to get up and talk about brain injury to this like distinguished crowd. They're going <laughs> to totally find me out. Yeah, I feel like that. Sometimes I sort of feel like people are going to realise that I'm like I don't have everything together, and I'm not like a big adult that knows exactly what I'm doing. And they're going to be like, "Sorry, I, I, I didn't, I didn't realise you were this bad." <laughs> that's what I feel like is going to happen all the time. But everyone feels like that. I think that's why it's such important advice to realise that you're not alone. <laughs> everyone gets it, and if you're there, you're there for a reason. So. <laughs> Yeah. And I think also then just kind of like, yeah, saying yes to things, because like, if that's the thing holding you back from saying mm. yes, yeah. then yeah, just ignore it and say yes. <laughs> Perfect. Fantastic advice. And yeah, thank you so much for joining me again. It's been a re really lovely chat again. And for anybody listening, thank you to you as well for joining us today. You can find out more about Saloni and her work by following the links in the podcast description on Buzzsprout or in your podcast app. And join us again at the same time next week for another episode of Psychological. Bye.